Welcome to the Motor Witch Chronicles. I'm your host, Koji Halnwine, and this is episode eight. In this episode, I'd like to introduce you to an incredible woman. She is a traveler, motorcyclist, writer, speaker. She has a wonderful book out at the moment called Hit the Road Jack, and it's about her seven years, 20 countries with no plan, all on the back of her royal Enfield. Jackie Fernow, welcome to the Motovich Chronicles. Thank you so much for being here all the way from the UK today. You're here in Dublin with me. I would like to start off with just you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do and a little bit about how you got into riding motorcycles. Well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me along. I'm truly honoured. I've listened to several of your podcasts and I'm honoured to be amongst the wonderful group of women you've got already. Thank you so much. And I'm very happy to be here. And yes, it's all been a huge surprise for me. I've had a fairly normal life as a, a wife, a nurse, a mother, somebody's sister, somebody's daughter. And then something very peculiar happened. I, I was expecting to be happily married all my life. And my husband and I made plans to, to travel a bit when our two daughters had left home to go to university. And the marriage went wrong quite unexpectedly. And I found myself on my own and wondered what on earth I should do now because it wasn't in the plan. So I thought the best thing I could do for everybody was to just disappear out of the way. And with my tail between my legs, I went backpacking in Asia. Having already got my bike test, I passed that in uh, 1976. There was a very hot summer. It went on for week after week and I was so hot. And my then husband came home from work one day to find me in the back garden trying to keep cool in a paddling pool with the two small daughters. And he said, well, why don't you have a ride on the motorbike? He used to go to work on a Honda 70. And he came back and he said, well, have a whiz around the streets on this. It'll cool you down. I feel quite cool just coming home from work. And I was a nurse and I'd worked in the casualty department of my local hospital in Bristol seen people being scraped off the road and brought into the oh um, casualty unit. And I thought, I'm never getting on a motorbike. Thank you very much. But however, he, he did persuade me in the end. And it was easy. It just had one twist grip throttle to go and one brake to stop. And the bike did everything else. I had a, a driving license. And I think in those days, you were allowed to ride a motorcycle with a provisional license and L plates. Right. So we, we stuck something on the back or not, I can't remember. I was probably illegal. Uh, and off I went and I did the going round the streets and it was lovely and cool. And that was it. I was hooked and wow. got back about half an hour later. And at the time, my brother-in-law was a motorcycle instructor instructor. Oh, wow. And so I used to ride the bike down to Western Supermare, about 20 miles down the road and have a lesson once a week. And I passed my test. I bought a Honda 125, right. uh, upgraded, and practically have had a, a motorcycle ever since. Wow. Uh, usually, Jap well, always a Japanese one, sometimes a Honda, and I ended up with a Suzuki. And then when I was on my tail between my legs journey in Asia, I was in India, and I was debating whether or not to go on a camel safari in the desert, in the Tar Desert in Rajasthan. I was in a place called Jaisalmer, and I'd got various leaflets and brochures with me, and I was going to pour over them over lunch. And I walked into a restaurant, and at the same time that I arrived, 
so did a dusty looking man, a European looking man on a, a funny looking motorbike. I'd never seen anything like it before. So I showed an interest in it and I asked him, would he mind if I joined him? for lunch and he said no by all means do so we sat and I learned all about Enfields because it was a Royal Enfield and he'd not long bought it in Chennai used to be called Madras and he'd ridden it there and so he was telling me all about it and I told him I had a bike license so anyway he decided to stay in Jaisalmer and we spent four days together in the desert, I forgot all about the camel safari because he put me on the back of his motorbike with all my luggage as well. Oh, wow. And we went off into the desert, not knowing where we were going. We, we told awful fibs to get into a restricted area and we were camping. He had a little tent. So off I went with him for four days. And as you're traveling, you meet lots of people, you meet backpackers that you get on really well with, and some you stay in touch with and some you don't. And you think, well, that was a nice meeting. I really like that person. But you're going separate ways. And sometimes you, you, you might not ever see them again or hear from them again. And after the end of our four days together, his Indian visa was running out and he had to get into Pakistan. And I was meeting my younger daughter in Bombay. So we parted and I thought, well, that was nice. I'll probably never see him again or hear from him again. We didn't even exchange email addresses because email was quite new. Yeah. And this is in, this was in 1999. Right. Yeah. And I didn't, I think I had an email address. Probably a hotmail or something. It was hotmail. <laughs> yes. I'm still on hotmail. <laughs> and, uh, so we, we exchanged house, uh, house addresses. Right. Although I didn't have a house, I gave him my mother's oh. home address and he gave me his parents' home address because he hadn't got a home either. And when I eventually got home from my year backpacking, there was a letter from him and, uh, and I replied and I thought, well, that'll be it. And just said, well, was it, my letter to him was, wasn't it great? Weren't we lucky to meet and have all that fun? Um, I'm home now. And within a f couple of months, he turned up on my mother's doorstep and said, I've never been able to forget you. Why don't you buy a motorbike in India and we'll travel together? Oh, wow. Sounds like a dream. And as he was um, a very exciting, adventurous young man, he was 17 years younger than me and good looking. I thought he reminded me a bit of Robert Redford and he was an ex-lifeguard. And I thought, yes, <laughs> I'll do that. And I hadn't been able to settle back after my year traveling. I was having dreadful trouble thinking what to do next because yeah. I'd burned my bridges in my career as well. So I, I leapt at the chance and went to India and bought my own Enfield. And that's how the seven years traveling started. Wow. Oh my God. It sounds like such a dream and very romantic start to it all as well. Well, it was. Yes. And it was excellent. We met in India. He had to go and get his bike. He'd left his in South Africa and we met in India. Yeah. And he oversaw my purchase, made sure I got the, the right model and, and had the right luggage racks on the back and the crash bar and two horns, which uh, you need in India for letting people know you're coming. <laughs> and for me, it was absolutely lovely because he wanted to lead. And so for the first six months or so, I just trailed around behind him. Yeah. 
which was lovely. And he wasn't a clock watcher. And I'd always had to watch the clock, a career as a nurse. My husband was very much a clock watcher. And we always had to hurry when we were on holiday because we only had the two weeks usually that most people have. So I'm a great one for museums. And I like to stay in a museum and read every single notice under every single exhibit, whereas he'd be looking at his watch and saying, oh, come on, we can get on to the next place. And I could just spend time and days would pass and I'd still be in the same place. But I did have the luxury of time, which most people don't have. Yeah, yeah. And Hendrikus was very much like me, that if you're happy where you are, stay around. And if you don't like the look of somewhere that you thought you might like, just ride on. So that's what we did. And we were in rural India, which was so beautiful. Hardly see a soul all day. But if you stopped, then people would, would come and see what was what. And we went to places where they wouldn't have seen a big ginger head Dutchman <laughs> on an Enfield with a small woman on hers. Yeah. We were, we were quite a, a spectacle. But were they used to seeing women on bikes? or Not at all. Uh, in the cities, Indian women were riding scooters quite mm. a lot. I think it's all changed now. And there's a big movement of women motorcyclists in India. Yeah. And I'm in touch with quite a few of them. Oh, and, great. Um, yes. In fact, I met the most amazing woman at the Horizons Unlimited meeting recently uh, that she'd come over to India and bought a KTM and was uh, exploring the UK on that. Oh, wow. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. So she came from India to yes, the UK. Yes. Oh, wow. I love that it's going both ways now. I know. It's so magical. I know. And I'm in touch with her on Instagram, which is which yeah. great. So what kind of places did you guys visit to begin with, like in that first six months, I'd say? Um, rural India, yeah. mostly. We would take the back roads, neither of us liking the big roads. He was into IT and he had to earn a bit of money. So he was doing courses along the way. And we stayed in, in small towns and sometimes cities, but mostly we were traveling in rural India, which I loved. Yeah. We were sleeping out whenever we could, which was lovely because yeah. I was an avid girl guide. And loved camping. And family camping was always fun. My husband and I used to take the children yeah. camping in France. So I was used to camping. But sleeping outside with no tent was just heaven. Oh, loved it. You know, a little stove making a brew in the morning. Yeah. It was returning to a, a happy time for me. So when you guys were on the road, did you plan where you were going to go? Or did you just make it up as you went? You said, hey, that looks like a nice road. Let's go there. Like, How did you map out or decide where it was you wanted to go? We had a vague idea that we would go north and see if we could uh, get into Sikkim, northern India, and then into Nepal. Okay. There was always the possibility that we wanted to get into China, but I, I didn't think that was very likely, but it was something that, that Hendrikus wanted to try. Right. So we sort of tootled along in a northerly direction from Chennai, um, doing a lot of zigzagging. When we saw a place name that we liked, it had a funny name, we'd want to go there. And if it sounded, if it looked like it was interesting on the map, if there was lots of river crossings and things, we'd go that way. So I learned a different type of motorcycling from what I'd been used to. Yeah. I'd always had a road bike and stayed on tarmac before. All of a sudden, I'm riding through rivers on an oh Enfield. And uh, I thought before I started, I could uh, I could ride a motorbike, but I didn't think I I wasn't going to have experiences like this. And then all of a sudden, yes, I'm I'm changing in gravel tracks and goat tracks. 
steep uphills and downhills, and I could manage them pretty well, even yeah. with a heavy bike like the 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 Enfield, yeah, five hundred yeah. cc Enfield is not a light bike, but with a low center of gravity, I managed. I dropped it a lot. And how did you manage when you dropped it, say on mud tracks and these uh, roads? Well, I called for Hendrikus yeah. to come and help pick me up, and he was a big man, right. and uh, he just picked it up very easily. So when I was travelling on my own later on, I had to learn how to pick it up without him. Oh, my God. And with all that luggage. And, mm. Wow. That's when wow. you learn to travel light. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of travelling and what you brought with you, from photographs I've seen, you never have any particular motorcycle gear or helmets or anything. So was that ever... A- an issue for you or was it ever in the back of your mind if I come off this I've got no protection or no it didn't cross my mind and the roads we were traveling on you couldn't go very fast anyway yeah Um, getting up to 50 kilometers per hour was really something and the stretches of tarmac that there were on the roads we were on were usually very potholed and you really had to look where you were going. So, no, you couldn't go very fast. And we didn't wear helmets. And we could talk to each other. We rode side by side yeah, a lot of the time. And we were just chatting to each other, going at such slow speeds yeah. that we could do that. And we'd pass each other sweets. Well, he would pass me sweets. <laughs> and uh, I'd collect them. And we, we learned all sorts of tricks, like riding with no hands. Yeah. And, and sometimes the throttle cable would stick with all the dirt on the road. And you could just leave the throttle on, like all, on um, automatic control and we just sit there steering with our bodies because yeah. I'd, I'd done that as a child on my bicycle so that came second nature oh, amazing so you guys traveled together for how many years four years but you were on the road then for seven yes so you traveled by yourself then for the the remaining three years yes he wanted to travel on his own also and when we got to malaysia he got a bit fed up with traveling i think and uh, he wanted to be on his own, or he got fed up with me, one or the other, or both. So we separated, and it, to all intents and purposes, we thought it was permanently, but we kept in touch. Mm. And he informed me that he'd got to Australia. He'd put his bike on a plane and gone to Perth from Singapore. I was still in Malaysia, and I thought, well, I'd like to go to Australia as well. I suppose I had it in my mind then that I would be shifting that way eastwards and I'd always wanted to go to Australia and New Zealand and I thought well they're on the way home maybe maybe I'll get home that way I had no intentions of bringing the bike home at all I was intending to just dump it somewhere and go home and be normal again anyway I thought well wouldn't it be nice to um, do it by sea and I got friendly with some people at the marina where I was staying in Malaysia and one of them had said I could just get your bike in the transom of my catamaran it could go across from one side to the other and we measured it up and it would and so we had a business agreement that if I paid half the expenses and did half the work and had my own cabin that we would do that and we would sail through Indonesia stopping off at islands it sounded so nice and I thought that's what I want to do so I did work on his boat with him for about three or four months getting it ready for this trip and come the day we set off and it was practically disastrous from the minute we set off it had been disastrous all the way along we weren't getting on but I had invested enough money and time helping him get the boat ready Mm that I wasn't giving up. So off we went, and before too long, we were sailing down the Straits of Malacca with no wind, so we had to use the engine, and he put the propeller on the wrong way, so we were going backwards to start with. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) And we saw something in the distance, 
and we couldn't make out what it was. But as we got closer, we thought, oh, it's a man. And then as we got even closer, it was five men in the middle of the Straits of Malacca, clinging to bits of wreckage, bits of polystyrene and jerry cans with uh, that were keeping them afloat and bits of wood. And we got close to them and they'd been there for several days. Wow. And they had been trying to get from Indonesia over to Malaysia, which was uh, a move in the right direction for them. And they'd just been dumped by the fishermen that they paid to take them. They'd just been dumped overboard. Oh my God. With this wreckage to cling to and nothing else. Well, hardly anything else. So you know how when you've been in the bath too long, your fingers, the fingertips go all mm-hmm. um, wrinkled? Yeah. Well, they'd been in the water for days and they, they were in a pretty sorry state. So Gosh. we picked them up and I hydrated them immediately with water and tea and went mm-hmm. around giving them bananas and, yes, typical English women giving <laughs> them tea to replenish their nutrition. We thought, well, we must hand them in to the Malaysian authorities. So we headed over to Klang, Port Klang. But on the way... We'd got rather fond of them, even though the language was quite a difficulty, but we got fond of them. So we arrived at Port Klang at dusk and it was the skipper's decision. Luckily, it wasn't my decision. We just let them go ashore. Next day, we found out that we'd let them go within metres of a, of a police launch. Oh depot, God. and there were five police launches with policemen in and right in the middle of where we'd let them go, thinking oh. it was a quiet <laughs> spot. Oh, my God. But we got away with it. We we were illegal ourselves because we should have booked ourselves back into Malaysia because we'd stamped our passports out of Malaysia and we were in nowhere. We were stateless. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so we should have announced our arrival, but we hadn't. And we just slipped out the next day onto more trouble. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It, It was a disaster from the time... We left from the time we it, we didn't get to Australia together. I got off in Indonesia after storms, thinking I was going to die. He threatened to kill me. Oh, my God. He, he said, really do you realise I could cut you up into little bits and throw you overboard and nobody would ever know? And I'd say wow. you went overboard on your night watch. That was oh fun, God. the night watch. That was great because he slept. He slept and you had to stay up. And I stayed up. And, of course, there was all these great big ships. We were on a shipping lane going into Singapore. And we were this tiny little catamaran. They can't they, see you. They couldn't see us. Hopefully they picked us up on the radar. Oh, jeez. Anyway, survived. But it, all of a sudden... I was looking at the starry, starry sky, and then all the stars would go out, and I'd realise that it was a great big tanker going past. Oh, my God, that is my biggest fear. (laughs) It was hilarious. Oh, dear. And all the time I was listening to the World Service on the BBC and learning what was going on. Wow. Wow. So it was quite an experience, and then finally we were robbed when we got to a little Indonesian island to book in and uh, to book ourselves in and have our passports stamped. And whilst we were doing that, somebody broke into the boat and we were robbed. And uh, all the the navigation gear was stolen. Everything was stolen. And by this time, I was thinking, if we get to Indonesia, if we get to Jakarta, because he had to go to Jakarta because he had two passports, one of which was stolen and all his money. Luckily, I had mine with me. He'd left his on the boat. Right. So I thought, well, if we get to Jakarta alive, I'm getting off. And I did. Wow. Smart decision. Oh, I was never <laughs> so glad to be on dry land. Yeah. The first time this, I did something stupid again. Um, as that. And I just whooped for joy when I got yeah. the bike off the boat and rode away. Never been so happy in my life. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs>
No, we did not keep in touch. I can imagine. Yeah, and I, the fact that you survived and got through all that, and you're still smiling about it. <laughs> it's, it's, one, it's one of the few things that, the disastrous things that happened that I, I still have a chill about. Yeah. That and the next voyage I did. Which one was that? Leaving Colombia to go to Panama. I did the same thing. I put the bike on a boat, having spent months helping the skipper get it ready, doing the filthy anti-fouling job and getting covered in toxic substances on my skin. And we didn't get on. He was Italian and he was fiery and he had a temper and he broke the compass one day in a fit of fury. And I still went. You'd you'd have thought I'd learned the first time, but no. So he threatened to throw the bike overboard as um, an anchor when we got into trouble in another storm on the way to Panama. Oh, gosh. And he threw me off eventually on a little island and so I had to bribe some fishermen to take me over to the mainland. Wow, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> so I did promise the bike after that one. Yeah. I would never ever put it on a small boat again. Yeah. Ferries are allowed. Yeah. Wow, you've really put yourself through some crazy adventures. Yeah. Stupid. You mentioned when you picked up the immigrants that the language was a barrier. So clearly you've been through lots of different countries with lots of different languages. So how do you communicate with the locals? when you arrive at a new place? I always try to learn a few words before I get there. Hello is a good one, mm-hmm. and please and thank you. And I, if I learn to count up to 10, that's quite good. And where is, and pointing, sign language, you can point to the petrol tank mm. when you want fuel. And if you want uh, a hotel for the night, you, you just mimic going to sleep on a pillow with your hands folded. Mm. And so people understand so yes, I, I I managed quite well. Being so long in India and Pakistan, I learned quite a bit of Hindi and Urdu. Right. Not quite a bit, enough to get by. Yeah, yeah. And enough to know when I was being ripped off, which was quite interesting. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, um, but even uh, when you're in English language speaking countries, you have to be careful because there are different nuances uh, about what things mean in places. And I was in Canada on my way home and I helped a woman to the door and I said that she looked loaded with bags and uh, everybody turned around in the shop because loaded in Canadian means that you're drunk. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't a bit. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you do have to be a bit careful even with your own language. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the three years that you were traveling alone, clearly you're a beautiful woman alone on a motorcycle. Thank you. <laughs> of course. How did you find that you were received when you were alone versus when you were with the Dutch gentleman? Um, very, very well indeed. I think being greater in years than a lot of fellow travellers, I was treated with respect. And in countries like Pakistan, it was very difficult to actually stay in a hotel because people wanted to take me home with them uh, for my own safety because they thought I was vulnerable. But I was quite happy to stay in hotels and didn't feel a bit vulnerable. By this stage, I've been travelling for so long, I've just accepted what what the universe sent me and it was always well often good things and so I learned to be trusting I think that's the big thing I learned whilst I was traveling was to to trust people because people generally don't wish you any harm and want to be as helpful as they possibly can and when they see a woman on her own they brings out the best in people and quite often if I had to leave the bike with all the luggage on somewhere to go and do some shopping or to find somewhere to stay for the night, I would ask a group of young lads who were doing their best to look threatening. I would go up to them and ask them to just watch my bike for a a while whilst I went and 
did what I had to do. And they would very proudly accept and keep everybody away from my bike. So I think showing that you trust people Mm. does bring out the best in them. It it would in in me, I think. Yeah, that's actually really good advice, showing Mm. that you trust people. Yeah, show your vulnerability. Yeah. Because we are, when, when we're on our own in a strange country, we are vulnerable. We don't know the rules mm-hmm. and what to do and how to behave in quite a lot of places. You have a vague idea. There's a lot on the internet now about how to behave. There's a, a wonderful website for motorcycle travellers called Horizons Unlimited. Mm-hmm. And you can bet your life somebody's been where you want to go and can help you with the rules and regulations, like going into Colombia. I was advised that I would need my motorcycle registration on the back of my helmet and on a high-vis jacket. So I made sure I had those before I crossed the border. And the person that had given me the advice even invited me to have a cup of coffee. And he told me how lovely the women were and how beautiful Colombian women are. And I had to tell him that I was a middle-aged, well, late middle-aged woman. And he said, oh, well, in that case, come and stay. My mum wants you to come and stay. (laughs) And she was a high court judge. And so I learned all about how to make cocaine. Wow, because that's a useful useful piece of information. There's a recipe of that in my book, (laughs) should you wish to do it. It involves petrol and chalk and things like that. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so, yeah. Speaking of your book, your wonderful Mm. book, Hit the Road, Jack, titled Seven Years, 20 Countries, No Plan. Mm. It's an absolutely fantastic book where you share all your stories and challenges, your wins, your achievements on the road. And how did you document all this as you were going? How do you remember everything to be able to come home after seven years and write it down? I wrote copious diaries, never dreaming I would write a book about it because to me I was just traveling on a motorbike and it didn't seem to be terribly interesting and I didn't think anyone else would be interested to be honest but I was having such a great time and I saw such amazing things that I didn't want to forget I thought one day if I lose my sight like my mother did I would like somebody to read my diaries out to me Mm. or perhaps just flick through them and remember where I was when I wrote this thing And so I've I've got um, I've got about sixteen diaries at home that I was able to refer to. Yeah. I didn't know where to start, so I went through my diaries again and I put little notes where I thought there might be something of interest and wrote around those things. Yeah. Really, I mean, it would seven years. It could be it could be as big as an encyclopedia. Yeah, but I've narrowed it down to a, a paperback book. Wow. And so it's, uh, and the photos that you've included in it, they're just, it's so much fun to go through. Like even for my kids, they're flicking through it every day and they're looking at the pictures and they're like, wow, mom, this is a woman on a bike. This is so cool. Look at the places <laughs> she's been to and all these different. And it's just, it's, a, it's really magical that you were able to share this. Now, if you had 16 diaries, you clearly weren't traveling with your diaries. What did you do with them when you filled one? Well, Having filled a diary, it was a a great risk to send them in the post. That's what I did. I had no choice because otherwise I'd have just had diaries in my luggage. And when you travel and you've got to pick your bike up on your own and you're moving the luggage about a lot, you think, oh, right, I don't need that. I'll Mm -hmm. send that home. I didn't buy things that I really liked because I couldn't have them. And I learned to appreciate things just by looking at them. But my diaries were special. And so I sent them to some special friends back in Bristol and kept my fingers crossed that they all arrived 
And they did, even from very funny looking post offices. Sometimes you think, is that ever going to get anywhere? But they all arrived and going through them again has been great fun. I've really enjoyed writing the book because it made me relive my trip. Yeah, you can bring it back to life for yourself. Mm. What did your children think of you embarking on this journey? I mean, they were adults by the time you left, right? Mm. They were. They uh, when I went on my first backpacking year, they were at university or had finished university and started lives on their own. So I thought, off I go. So they were fully behind me. Yeah. I'd had a bad relationship. They were glad I was out of that. And I think they were happy that I was just going off and doing something for me, yeah. which I'm very grateful to them for. To go with their blessing was rather good, yeah. even though I was not pleased with myself. They had uh, completely forgiven me yeah. and uh, said I wasn't to believe I was in exile or anything. Right. So when I, I think when I survived my first year backpacking, they relaxed a bit. Right. And I'd been to Cambodia as a backpacker, which is renowned for its landmines. And I think they were ro- worried that I would get blown up in a landmine because I tend to wander off main paths yeah. and things. And they were worried that I'd step on something. So I didn't. And I think after that, they relaxed quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> You'd been through the worst and you survived it. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Little did they know that really, really worse things were yet to come. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you have had some crazy things happen to you on the road in terms of your health and your survival. Can you tell us a few of those stories? Well, health-wise, I'm lucky. I, I enjoy very good health. And even in places where people do suffer from gastric problems, and uh, I've managed to get through those. I've had Giardia a couple of times, managed to get through that. A great weight loss program, if anybody (laughs) wants to lose weight, is to get a bout of Giardia. But uh, no, I survived those. I've had some broken bones in Pakistan. I was traveling with Hendrikus. I was in front and we were on a mountain track trying to get across from east to west before the snows came. Lovely mountain track. And there was a, a river. The river was way below and the mountain was way above and it was beautiful. And all of a sudden I could hear something and it was a bit twisty and I knew some a vehicle was coming the other way. So I tucked myself in as far as I could into the mountainside, but it was too late. And a four-wheel drive vehicle came around the corner and went smack into me. Mm. And I knew immediately I'd broken my leg because I could see the bone through my jeans. Oh, God. And so I thought, oh, broken leg, damn it. That's going to put pay to my traveling for a while. <laughs> my, my foot had got impaled on the foot peg. And I thought, I think I'd rather do this myself than have somebody else do it. So... Oh. Before anything else happened, I twisted my leg back to it so the foot was facing the front and then just sort of slid off the bike and waited and everything happened then. There was Hendrik has caught up with me and the driver and the passengers got out of the four-wheel drive truck and some villagers arrived from nowhere <laughs> and they said, <laughs> don't worry, we'll look after your bikes. And the vehicle that crashed into me took me to the nearest medical centre, wow. which luckily was a very good one because the Aga Khan had invested a, a great deal into the health of the people of that area yeah. and had built a hospital. And it was a, a place where I could at least have a, a slab put on the back to keep my leg immobile while <laughs> an ambulance was called, which was another truck, to take me back where we'd just come from in Gilgit, yeah. where I stayed three days in the hospital and was then flown to Islamabad. 
because they couldn't deal with the break there. Oh, my gosh. But it was all good. I know it sounds crazy and people think I'm bonkers, but it was it actually turned out very well. I decided not to go home because my mother was ancient. My two daughters were working all the time and I thought, I'm just going to be a liability. I may as well stay here. So Hendrikas was quite happy to look after me. After I came out of hospital and we stayed with a family of Pakistanis I didn't know who said, you're not staying in a hotel, you're coming home with us. And they uh, they were a family of comedians, would you believe? Pakistani comedians. What? <laughs> and um, one was a puppeteer as well. So they looked after me, us. Wow. They gave us the best bedroom and they converted their toilet into a squat toilet. Uh, no, from a, from squat, a squat toilet into a European sit-down toilet just for me. Wow. Didn't charge us any money, wouldn't take anything. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Except cake. Except cake. <laughs> they would let us buy them cake and treats like that. But yeah. They oh, were so incredible. good. They were very, very good to us yeah. indeed. They went far better than they could, should have done really. Yeah. They yeah. treated us like royalty. Wow. So after seven years on the road, you then decided that you were going to finish off your trip. What was it that prompted you to finally stop traveling and go home? Well, I don't want to answer that question because I don't want to spoil whoever might read the book. (gasps) That's right. Because it is quite an important part of the book, my reasons for coming home. So if you don't mind, I'm going to not answer that question. Well, with that then, why don't you tell people where they can find your book? My book is on Amazon UK. It's difficult to get if you're not in the UK, but I'm working on that. Uh, It's also available on Kindle, so anybody all over the world can get it on Kindle. I'm considering doing an audio book as well. Oh, I would listen to that. (laughs) Would you? Constantly, yes. uh, But if people can't get it on Amazon, just drop me a line through my website, which is www.jackieferno.com. Send I'll me a note, the link in the show notes, and I will send you one, um, and we'll and manage to get the payment sorted out through PayPal or something like that. Great. So yes, I've sent them all over the world because Amazon is a law unto itself, and I can't get to the bottom of it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not in a businesswoman at all. Yeah. So, um, but I'm working on it at the moment. But I'll send it wherever you are. Great. So if people want to know why you've stopped traveling after seven years, <laughs> they can get your book there. Yeah, and some more Great. stories. Yes, so lots of stories. Can you tell us then what it's what it was like to go home and to sort of rejoin what you call as normal life? And I mean, honestly, I don't know which for you, which would you class as the normal life? You know, I feel like being on the road is your normal life. It certainly felt so. After combined with the year backpacking, I was away really the best part of 10 years. Yeah, that's right. uh, Because I came home, worked a bit, but my mind was still in Asia. Mm. And then when I got the invitation to travel with Hendrikas, that was seven. So it was extremely hard coming back and trying to be normal again. And I don't know that I am now. It certainly changed me. It did me the world of good, seeing how other people live around the world and realising that British isn't always the best way of doing things, but it's a pretty good country to live in and we're extremely lucky living over this side of the world. But I'm hankering to go travelling again. Yeah, yeah. And you have been doing a little bit. Oh, I've been all over the place yeah. since. I've been all over Europe. Yeah. I mean, I've still got the same bike and I've 
I've taken it to France and Spain and Morocco and Portugal and yeah. the Netherlands and Germany and and yes, I've had a, a wonderful time since. Yeah. And Ireland, it it had its wheels on the ground for the first time in Ireland less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. So I've ridden Ireland on the on the tank because on the um, battery box because inside the front cover is all the country names yeah. I've been to. So Ireland's on there now. Great. Fast falling for Ireland. Yeah, this is a fantastic country. It certainly is. So in love with my country. Yeah. (laughs) So these other trips you're taking, they're obviously much shorter trips. They have been, Are they weeks at a time or months at a time? Or When I went to France, Spain, Portugal and Morocco, that was three months. Right. But no longer than that. Yeah. And is that by choice or is that just necessity? Or is it something that you learned from traveling that you should just keep it to a shorter time away? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Well, I think I was on a mission before. I didn't know it at the time. Funny, but I was on a mission. Yeah. And when I've done subsequent trips, I haven't felt I was on a mission. It was just to experience the European countries that I like very much. So I think Europe is lovely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lovely. Jackie, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. This is It's just been eye-opening. And I love that your motto, turn a negative into a positive. (laughs) This, it's something that really resonates with me because I really believe it. Everything bad happens, it happens for a good reason. So I love that. And thank you so much for sharing with everybody at the Motto Witch Collective. I will share all your links and where people can find you to your Amazon, to the book, everything where people can find it easily. Yes, do get in touch with me. I'm very happy to communicate with anybody. I don't know whether my advice would be good advice or not, but (laughs) I'm very happy to tell anyone. Beautiful. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode please rate review and subscribe now we love hearing back from you guys and if you want even more content head over to motowitch.com for articles written by world record holders adventure writers and new female writers alike if you're a female biker listening and you want to share your story email us at hello at motowitch.com or message us over at motowitch collective on instagram thanks so much for listening until next time ride safe <laughs>